History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. spooktacular people welcome to this 445th episode of the history ghost bump podcast ghost tours for the theater of the mind i am your host diane and this is kelly kelly on this episode we have a location suggested by listener todd buvarat and we hope we said that last name right this is ringwood manor which is found in new jersey it's got a fascinating history and some haunts going on there before we get into that we want to welcome into the spooktacular crew monica with a k lisa marie does she know elvis Honka, honka. <laughs> Denise, Phyllis, Kristen, who has two I's in her name, Annie, with an I-E, Angela, and Natalie. Thank you for joining us in our Facebook group. And now this moment, Noddity. We think it's safe to say that most of us enjoy a friendly game of Jenga. Trying to keep the blocks balanced can be a challenge. Now picture that game, but with boulders that range between 3 and 10 meters. These formations are why a location near Nambia, Africa is labeled the Giant's Playground. This location was believed to be formed around 180 million years ago during the separation of Pangaea, which resulted in some hectic disturbances on the land surface. This area is thought to have had molten magma push through cracks in the ground, which in turn surrounded dolerite boulders. After a couple of million years, the sedimentary rocks eventually eroded, leaving behind the rock formations known as dolerite dikes. In addition, there were thousands of years of wind, heat, and water which smoothed and polished these rock formations to give them the very clear appearance of giant Jenga games in progress. Although there are a variety of natural wonders in this world to enjoy, seeing perfectly stacked and balanced boulders from millions of years ago that are reminiscent of a giant's family game night certainly is odd. Are you afraid of the dark? That's just silly. What you should be afraid of is the thing that watches you sleep. (laughs) And now, this month in history. month of July on the 24th in 1911, American archaeologist Hiram Bingham arrives at Machu Picchu. Machu Picchu means Old Peak, and a farmer who lived nearby told Bingham's team that there were ruins at the top of the mountain. This was in the Urubamba Valley, northwest of Cusco, in Peru. Archaeologists believe that this megalithic ruin was once an Inca settlement, probably one used as a summer retreat. The Inca had no written language, so there are no clear records about them or the places they built. Radiocarbon dating has the site inhabited from 1420 to 1532. 
And research from recently here in 2022 seems to indicate that the Inca called it Huanya Pichu. Archaeologists named the three main structures on the site, the Temple of the Sun, the Room of the Three Windows, and Intihuantana. The Inca died out in the 16th century after Spanish invaders arrived. The site is a network of stone terraces with 3,000 stone steps that stretches over five miles. Machu Picchu has been under continuous restoration since 1976 and is today a UNESCO World Heritage Site and a popular tourist destination that hosts around 300,000 visitors every year. The Ringwood Manor that stands today was constructed over a period of a hundred years and features a variety of architectural styles. This was a country estate for a number of industrialists who spent their summers in Passaic County, New Jersey. The Ringwood area was sacred to Native American people, and one has to wonder if digging into the earth and pulling out resources from an area like this can cause supernatural activity. Is that why there's spirits here? Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of Ringwood Manor. The area where Ringwood State Park now sits was occupied by Native Americans for years. For a long time, the Munsee-speaking Lenape people hunted and farmed here along the Ringwood River Valley. They had a belief about this land, that it held a certain energy, and this energy fed supernatural forces. The Ringwood area was sacred for them. Beginning in the colonial period and running through the early 20th century, iron masters came to collect the rich magnetite iron deposits. These iron veins not only jutted up out of the ground, but also ran thousands of feet into the ground. On top of having all this ore available, the land was richly forested, and there was water available. So this was a perfect place for the iron industry to set up shop. A Welsh miner named Cornelius Board was the first to come to the area and mine for ore. The first structure on this site was an ironworks built by the Ogden family, who founded the Ringwood Company. A German named Peter Hasencleaver founded the American Iron Company and the company purchased the Ringwood property in 1764. Kelly, talking about these iron deposits and everything, we've been watching The Secret of Skinwalker Ranch. We got to the part where they're finding iron and stuff in the ground. And I'm like, is this like the place that we're getting ready to cover on HGB? (laughs) (laughs) Synchronicity. I mean, it's possible to have iron in the ground like that. That's where it comes from. But I don't know if it would be in Utah. In a mesa. I don't know. A Scottish engineer named Robert Erskine was hired in 1771 to run the ironworks. Erskine was born in Scotland in 1735 and was an engineer, ironmaster, land surveyor, and inventor. His inventions even earned him a fellowship in the Royal Society of London. It was through this group that he met Benjamin Franklin. He immigrated to America to manage the ironworks, which had over 500 employees. The house that was on site for him to live in was unimpressive to him. He said of the federal-style and clapboard-sided house that it was patched together at different times, creating an awkward architecture. Erskine continued his work through the Revolutionary War. 
He not only managed the ironworks to make sure the American cause was supplied, but General George Washington appointed him as his first geographer and surveyor general of the Continental Army. In that position, Erskine drew more than 275 maps, and Washington visited Ringwood several times to discuss roads on those maps. Erskine also manufactured that Hudson River chain that we talked about in the last episode that featured West Point. So a little bit of synchronicity there. I was doing the research and all of a sudden it was talking about this big chain that went across the Hudson River. And I was like, is that the one that we just did for West Point? Sure enough. Funny. He was given a commission to captain a local militia and those troops drilled on the Ringwood property. Death would bring Erskine's career to an early end on October 2nd, 1780. He was only 45 and had apparently caught a cold with a fever, so probably died from pneumonia. History claims that General Washington was at his bedside. Erskine was buried at the cemetery at Ringwood, and Washington planted an oak tree by the grave. Eventually, the cemetery would be filled with Revolutionary War soldiers, early pioneers to the area, and iron workers. Erskine's wife stayed on at Ringwood until 1782 when she remarried a man named Robert Lettuce Hopper Jr., and they moved to Belleville, New Jersey. The American Iron Company maintained the running of the ironworks and later sold it to a Pennsylvania business group in 1795. We're not sure what kind of group this was, but their business savvy must not have been so good with the ironworks because that didn't go very well and they ended up declaring bankruptcy. James Lyle acquired the property in 1804 and he sold it to Martin J. Ryerson. Martin J. Ryerson was born to a Dutch immigrant family in 1751. They traveled over from Amsterdam in 1646 and arrived in Hackensack, eventually making their way to Long Island. Martin was born and raised on a farmstead and left in 1778 when he married Froche von Winkle. They moved to the Pompton area and Ryerson got involved with the ironworks business, purchasing the Pompton Ironworks in 1797. With the wealth he was building, he opened up forges in two other towns. The Ryersons had three sons that were also involved in the ironworks business. Ryerson purchased the Ringwood property in 1807 for $27,500. Can you imagine? You've got the ironworks, a house, (laughs) mines. Times are a little bit different. The records about the house that was on the property are murky, but the Ryersons didn't move into the house Erskine had lived in. They either tore that down or it had burned in a fire. I couldn't find out which of those two things was the case. The family began building the first section of the manor house that stands today in 1810. This section was two stories, had 10 rooms, an attached kitchen wing, and was built in the federal and Dutch colonial styles. Typical of the style at the time, the floors were set up with an entrance hall stairway off to the side and two rooms to the left. There were two parlors, separated from men and women by an elaborate screen made from a large set of pocket doors and pantries. Ringwood was a headquarters for Ryerson and his sons as they ran several forges in the area. During the War of 1812, the Ringwood Ironworks was called upon to keep the war effort supplied. Martin Ryerson died in 1839, and the business began to struggle. Jacob was running the iron business on his own, as his brother John had died even before their father. He finally came to a point where he was going to have to sell the ironworks and property. Peter Cooper was an inventor and industrialist who learned from his father that a trade was better than an education. He married Sarah Bedell in Hempstead, New York in 1813, and they had six children. Only two would live to adulthood. I thought, oh my gosh, that's four children they lost as children. Many of his inventions were ingenious and grew from necessity. He came up with a self-rocking cradle after many nights of rocking his own baby after a long day of work. 
Wow. <laughs> Just imagine he comes home exhausted. The wife's like, I've been with the kids all day. You take the baby for a while. And he was just like, oh, man, is there some other thing I can do here to rock this baby? He also made a machine for shaping hubs of wheels, a rotary steam engine, and a way to siphon power from ocean tides. Hmm, that would be very good nowadays, wouldn't it? And probably the most important invention he created was made with his wife. This was the first widely used package table gelatin in America, now known as Jell-O. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I do, too. He purchased Ringwood Manor in 1854. He paid $100,000 for the 19,000-acre site and ran the ironworks under Trenton Ironworks. This business was managed by his son Edward and his son's business partner, Abram S. Hewitt, who eventually married Cooper's daughter and Edward's sister, Sarah Amelia. Guess he was hanging around the family a lot and got the girl. Apparently. The Cooper and Hewitt iron business was one of the largest iron businesses at the time and supplied the Union side of the Civil War heavily. Cooper built a large addition in the Romantic Revival style in 1864. There was a cupola in the center of the roof and Gothic trefoil carvings. Carved trefoil designs were also added to the interior. Abram Hewitt would be the last iron worker to live in the house. He hired architect Edward J.M. Derrick in 1878 to modernize and enlarge the 1864 wing. Derrick liked the Queen Anne style, and he added many of those elements to the house. An expansive living hall replaced the side hall with stair arrangement, and the back of the house was expanded to include a kitchen and dining room. Lots of wood was added to the house and the floors, with accents of cherry, maple, chestnut, and walnut. The columned porch was added, as was an oriel window, at the front of the federal wing. An oriel window projects out from the wall and is a bay window. So I don't know if you've ever seen, kind of like when you would look at a turret and you see something that kind of comes out from it, and it's a big oval that comes out. That's mm -hmm. exactly what these windows look like. Gotcha. Cooper died in 1883 at the age of 92 from pneumonia. The Hewitts took over the manor as a summer home and made more changes. Abram got involved in politics and helped shut down Boss Tweed and reform Tammany Hall. He gave the dedication speech for the Brooklyn Bridge and eventually was elected mayor of New York City. In the 1880s, they finally added the most important part of any house. <laughs> Toilets. Excellent. <laughs> Toilets were added to the manor at that time, along with coal-fired furnaces, which I appreciate, and outbuildings were expanded. The 1900s brought more changes under the hand of Stanford White of the firm McKim, Mead, and White. This was a firm that specialized in the Beaux-Arts style. The name Stanford White might be familiar to you, as we've mentioned him on the podcast before, in regards to his murder at Madison Square Garden at the hand of Harry Kendall Thaw. White had drugged, raped, and started an affair with his wife, Evelyn Nesbitt, before the two had married. The trial was one of those trials of the century, and Thaw was found not guilty by reason of insanity. Although White's firm specialized in a different architectural style, White was embracing the neoclassism that was becoming popular in the beginning of the 20th century. The clapboard walls were covered over in stucco, and an ionic columned veranda was added. A gambrel roof was added over much of the manor, and an east wing was added with a symmetrical two-and-a-half-story gable roof. All of these changes were meant to make the house look more uniform and get rid of the quirks, but it didn't completely work, which is good because the Victorian style would have been completely lost if they'd done that. In 1910, a piazza replaced the Victorian porch on the west side of the manor, and the chimneys were simplified. The woodwork and trim on the interior were painted white, and French styling was brought in with furnishings and decor. By the time the Hewitts were done renovating and adding to the manor, there were 51 rooms. I ain't cleaning that place. <laughs> 
The house was full of many collections the Hewitts had put together over the years, and they had enhanced the gardens with sculptures. Ringwood's iron mines eventually closed, and the Hewitt family decided to donate the manor to the state of New Jersey in 1938, and this included its contents. The state turned the manor into a museum and opened Ringwood State Park. The property was listed as a National Historic Landmark District in November of 1966. There's a carriage barn on the property, and these were signs at the time that the property owner had great wealth. It's kind of like having a really large garage. Clearly, you have several horses and carriages if you have a large carriage barn. This barn would be the first thing visitors saw when they arrived at Ringwood Manor. Sarah Hewitt had more than 40 horse-drawn carriages, and nearly all were custom-made. So this is like she had 40 sports cars sitting yeah. in her garage. <laughs> Call her Jay Leno. <laughs> it's just interesting because you would think a woman would have a lot of other, I don't know, clothing, shoes. That's what we look to today. But at the time, I guess the carriages was really a thing for her. Clearly. She owned hundreds of additional reins, bridles, blankets, saddles, whips, and tack. And all of this was donated to the Henry Ford Museum in Dearborn, Michigan. This barn was fairly luxurious with heated grates to keep the horses warm, 12 regular-sized horse stalls, and three double-sized rooms for the thoroughbreds. So I'm assuming thoroughbreds are bigger? <laughs> yes, they are. They also said that those rooms were set aside for breeding purposes. Well, I figured it'd probably be where they would put the mares when, she was, when they were ready to foal. Gotcha. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. Tours are offered of the manor, including enchanted evening tours. And that's not because they're trying to give you a nice little meal with candlelight and enchanting in that way. It's actually meant for hanging out in the dark. With spirits. I'm thinking <laughs> they don't do ghost hunting per se, but that's your whole purpose is to be in there after dark. One of the people to visit was none other than ghost hunter Hans Holzer. He said that it was one of the most interesting haunted houses he had ever visited, which is saying something. Wow. He brought a psychic named Ethel Johnson Myers with him, and she claimed that she had contacted three separate entities. The first was a man named Jackson White, who was born Native American and Black, and was a 19th century servant at Ringwood Manor. Legend claims he was beat to death by a white worker who caught him stealing from the pantry. The second spirit was also a servant, but he had served the Erskins and was named Jeremiah. He told the psychic that he had been abused. The final spirit was Mrs. Erskine, and she spoke through Ethel and told Holzer he needed to get off her property. <laughs> <laughs> get off my lawn! And what's funny is she wasn't like the most recent owner. That was the Hewitts, and then they had the Coopers and the Ryersons. So I wonder how she felt all that time. There was something about him she did not like. I don't know. Holzer concluded that the area of the manor that had the most activity was Mrs. Erskine's former bedroom from the house that had stood there before. The bed in here is often rumpled. And the interesting thing is that had stood there before. So this is the Erskine right. house, which had either burned down or been torn down. So if she's going to be upset about a house, I would think she'd really be upset. Like, where is my house? <laughs> Indeed. Someone else that experienced Mrs. Erskine was said to be Martin Ryerson. He told people that someone kept opening locked windows, and he felt cold spots. Ryerson would make sure to check every window and door at night to make sure things were all locked up tight. It never mattered. He would find the windows and doors opened in the morning. Visitors to the house felt as though they were being watched in the upstairs and downstairs hallways. 
Cold spots are also felt by people in these areas. I always love it when we get some of these ghost stories that go way back. So this would have been in the 1800s when he owned it, that he was telling people about this stuff. In a New York Times article in 1986, the museum curator at the time, Albertus J. Prawl, said of one of the ghosts, he or she, we don't know the identity of this particular person, is said to pass through the door, slam it, bound noisily through the hallway and up the stairs where it vanishes atop the second floor landing. If you ask me, whatever it is certainly is going nowhere in a hurry. It kind of falls in the realm of a poltergeist since it's always heard but never seen, which explains why they don't know the identity of this particular spirit. And I love that it was the museum curator sharing that. A superintendent of the manor named Alexander heard disembodied footsteps and they sounded as though they came from two different spirits. So it must have been the way the footfalls were or something. Maybe somebody sounded heavier than another one, but he said it sounded like two different people. Sure, or coming from different directions, perhaps. Could be. He also would lock everything up at night and then come back in the morning to find all the doors open wide, just like Martin Ryerson. So definitely somebody's trying to keep that place open. That would tick me off. (laughs) Well, not only that, but we've discussed it before. How dangerous is that? Or, you know, somebody could go in and steal stuff. Exactly. This house is full of all kinds of collections. You don't want to have the doors wide open. It's not just Mrs. Erskine who's here, though. Her husband is said to be here as well. Curator Prawl said of this specter, Legend has it that Erskine sits upon his tomb, and he has also been known to escort travelers late at night to the wooden bridge at Drink Brook. It has been said that he appears carrying a pale blue lantern that smacks against his shinbone. Upon reaching the bridge, he vanishes. Erskine isn't the only one to rise in the cemetery. A group of French soldiers who fought under Rochambeau during the Revolutionary War were buried here. People have claimed to see the spirits of these soldiers rise at night, and they walk around the pond. Disembodied whispers in French are also heard, not just near the pond, but also in the house. Apparently, this was a group that was marching across the land during one of the wars, and I think it was kind of one of those wherever they collapsed, they buried them. I'm not sure, but they're in the cemetery here on the property. A female spirit enjoys the pond as well. She likes to be alone there and will chase away anyone who encroaches on her solitude. Several fishermen who've come to the pond claim that their fishing tackle and rods will mysteriously disappear and then reappear sometime later or in a different spot, usually their vehicles. How funny. She's like, take the hint, get out. (laughs) I know. You can see them going, where did my fishing pole and tackle box go? And they're looking around, looking around. They go back to the car and find it in the trunk. And it's like, you're packed up. See ya. A fragrant perfume is smelled here as well. An old mining road is near the house called Margaret King Avenue. Near the road is a large rock nicknamed Spook Rock. Another unknown female spirit rises from this rock and she wails and moans. Then she vanishes back into the rock. People call her Mad Mag, using the road name for inspiration. Don't know why she's there or what she's doing. The Native Americans called the forest here the Haunted Woods. This land is a place of iron and water. It's no wonder that there may be some supernatural activity here. The manor played host to many families. Are the spirits trapped here? Are there ghosts that have chosen to stay? Is Ringwood Manor haunted? That is for you to decide. Well, thank you very much, Todd, for suggesting this to us. I had never heard of this location and what a history it has going on there. A lot of people own this home, but the iron industry is just so important to that area. And this was a great way to kind of get to know a little bit more about that and the families that were involved with that. Yeah, definitely. Thank you, Todd, for sending this over as a suggestion. I want to encourage you guys to check out our website at historygoesbump.com and you can send us some feedback at historygoesbump at gmail.com. 
have a story here from Martha. She said, I used to work as a housekeeper once or twice a week in an older refurbished home built in the early 1900s called Nahapwa. It's located on Route 23C in Tannersville, New York. One day after I cleaned the dining room, I took a picture of it. There, leaning against the table is a ghost of the original houseboy, with his hair cut parted in the middle, a red tie, white shirt, and light brown pants. He just loves that home, and you'd love it too because it's beautiful. So cool. Yeah, I love it because, you know, I've had a couple of things happen when I've been doing my housekeeping stuff too. So it's always fun to hear that from them. And she probably just was like, this room is so beautiful. I've got it all nice and clean. I'm going to take a picture. And she probably looked at the camera and went, what in the hell? (laughs) (laughs) I was in that place alone. And to have a detailed picture like that, I'd love to see the picture. Yeah, definitely. Justin had shared in the crew, I just listened to the latest Haunted Cemetery show. And when y'all were talking about the caravan with the Landau trim, it reminded me of something from several years ago. I was an entry-level tech at a Dodge dealership when a gentleman with a some sort of funeral home logo on his jacket came walking into the shop. He was asking another tech and me if someone was available to look at his van. He was acting a little strange. Then he said, I ain't trying to be funny or anything, but I'm transporting a body back and the van is acting weird. We send him up to the service counter and guess who gets to pull the van on the rack and check it over? Yep, yours truly. So I get in the van and I look in the mirror at the body and said, you stay back there, buddy, and we'll get along just fine. (laughs) (laughs) So after we check it out, we got the other entry level tech to pull it out. We told him what was in it, but he didn't believe it. He comes back from the parking lot just to stutter and y'all wasn't kidding. There really is a body in there. (laughs) Too funny. And then he later added that it was just a regular engine issue that he was having that they fixed for him. So it's not like the ghost of the body in there was messing around with the car or something. But he probably was like, oh my gosh, I need to get this body to wherever we're transporting it. And the car's breaking down on me. That's uh, nobody even thinks about that kind of stuff. You know, what if a hearse breaks down and there's a body in it? Thanks for sharing that, Justin. And then Janae shared in the crew on West Point, she had actually been to the West Point Cemetery and she shared a bunch of pictures and I put a bunch of those up on Instagram. So if you guys want to check those out, you can. She said, my aunt worked at West Point for a few years. Just walking around there, you can feel the history. There's a super small but very nice cemetery on the grounds that my friend and I walked around for a bit. Lots of weird noises heard and creepy feelings felt at night while helping my aunt at the elementary school on the base. Oh, very nice. Maybe that's another haunted location that we just didn't find any information about. Could be. But I wouldn't doubt it because all those other places are haunted too. So, And then we also heard from Sarah Mae Harvey in the Spooktacular crew. She says, hi, everyone. I've been binging the podcast from the beginning, because I'm OCD like that, for a few months now. I really like history and spooky history even more. I was accepted to the group around June 24th, so I randomly decided to listen to the following week's podcast to hear my welcome. And the episode happened to be about the Weems Bots Museum in Dumfries, Virginia. I lived not far from there, like walking distance from 2004 to 2016. Now that is odd. So now Sarah May has gotten a taste of what all of our listeners and Spooktacular crew have gotten a taste of. Synchronicity runs thick in this place. (laughs) It sure does. So I am not surprised that you just happened to say, I want to listen to a more recent episode. Oh, here's the Weems bots. And it's the one that welcomes me into the Spooktacular crew. And wouldn't you know, I lived right down the road from that place. Exactly. What are the chances? Very cool. We want to thank all of you for listening to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode is brought to you by our executive producers.
Join me in the cemetery by becoming an executive producer. You can join on Patreon or PayPal. Check out the Support the Show tab on the website for more information. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for joining us. Stop it. In the month of July, on the 24th in 1911, American archaeologist Miriam, Miriam? Miriam. It's Miriam Hiram. Hiram, Miriam? Miriam, did you hear him? <laughs> I can't hear him. This area is thought to have had molten magna. Mag- magna. Magnification. Oh. Okay. <laughs> Never molten, heard of it. Molten magnification. The property was listed as a National Historic Landmark District in November of eight. Nope. <laughs> 1866. <laughs> wow, they declared that historical a long time ago.